I think it's important when going through something like this to find one small thing that you can latch on to so that it does get you out of bed no matter what time, even to go to the bathroom or take a shower or brush your teeth. That gives you that pull to actually say, I can get out of bed today and that's all I can do and that's fine. My son was that for me because I I knew immediately, I, I knew that this, his dad's death um, would impact him, but I didn't want it to dictate his life nor mine. And so understanding that it would impact things for him, I knew that it wouldn't be fair to allow my grieving journey to hold my son back in being able to embrace and and really learn and grow in his life and to become who he is meant to be. Hello and welcome to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. This podcast is about exploring the grief that occurs at different times in our lives in which we have had major changes and transitions that literally shake us to the core and make us experience grief. I created this podcast for people to feel a little less hopeless and alone in their own grief process as they hear the stories of others who have had similar journeys. I'm Kendra Rinaldi, your host. Now, let's dive right in to today's episode. Today, I'm chatting with Alexandra Wyman. She is the author of The Suicide Club, What to Do When Someone You Love Chooses Death. She is an advocate and public speaker for resources in the aftermath of suicide and currently lives in Colorado with her son. So welcome, Alexandra. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. I am happy that you are and... Happy to be having this conversation of a very sensitive topic at the same time, one that we need to take the veil off even more to talk about, you know, death by suicide. But even more importantly, I really love that your book is really focused more on the grieving part and the different phases that you kind of thought out or experienced yourself that occur when grieving. So we'll be kind of navigating that not to give too much up to the audience either so that they can buy the book. So, oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so we'll just, we'll just touch on it. So let's mm. chat more about you. So right now you live in Colorado. So take us into your childhood. Where did you grow up? Sure. Yeah. So I'm originally from California uh, and was born in San Francisco and I and first generation on my dad's side and second generation on my mom's side. So both my parents are of Russian descent. And so we come from very rich cultural background, uh, religious background. And uh, both my parents grew up in California as well. And my dad is a still currently a Russian Orthodox priest. So we moved around quite a bit. And so a lot of my childhood was kind of bridging the gap between being in an immigrant family, traveling a lot, so never really feeling like we had roots down. My dad would say, like, family and home is where all of us are together. So 
doing that and then also trying to in a way assimilate I don't think I really realized this till I was well into my adulthood of how much assimilation I actually had to do in getting used to some of the American culture because at home and my parents don't have accents or anything when they speak Russian you know they they are bilingual but um so it, it was very interesting to to kind of be in American society, American culture, and then also have this rich, different culture at home as well. Um, and so in the 90s, it's weird to say that, but in the 90s, uh, my parents and I uh, moved to Colorado. My, I have two older siblings and they were in college. And so I went to high school in Colorado and then moved away, traveled quite a bit. I've always had a little bit of a travel bug and then moved back here to Colorado and to be closer to family, to to go to grad school. And um, that's where I ended up meeting Sean, my late husband, and just kind of ended up in this whirlwind romance and um, ended up working in pediatric occupational therapy. And then about uh, just before our second wedding anniversary is when Sean ended up dying. So it's it's kind of a, <laughs> there's kind of a lot in a small small amount of time there, I know, but, um, so lots of moving around in, in that cultural background that led to, um, kind of life erupting unexpectedly. Mm. So much that I was uh, trying to take notes here as you're <laughs> talking because there was like, okay, because then of course I could forget to ask you something that <laughs> might've come up as you were talking. So the, the part of your cultural background now that I know as I was asking you before we started to record I'm like how do I pronounce your name so I guess I could have said like more like Alexandra or something <laughs> how, how would it be said in 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 Russian how would Alexandra Alexandra be said in like stronger right like in Spanish yeah, yeah it's very it, Alexandra yeah it's Alexandra what, Alexandra yeah, <laughs> yeah. so I yeah. I could have said it that way then I <laughs> so I want to ask you totally just so that I don't forget how was it then for you in the assimilation after assimilating grief and death when Sean passed with your background being very religious and did your experience as an adult match the belief systems that you were brought up in believing about what happens after we die or how is it that we grieve? Yeah, that is such a good question. Um, and I actually love this question because I think having the religious background created a baseline for me. And I do see a difference between religion and faith because um, I find the religion is going to be the construct that we have as being humans here. But the faith to me kind of supersedes that. And so having this baseline and understanding um, did help because I have come across people who didn't have that and their grief and their reaction and what they hold on to as far as when our when our favorite people die um, is very different and can almost be a little bit bigger in the sense of holding on to those tangible things. You know, if I, if I don't know where Sean is, then I need to hold on to whatever I have that was his here on earth. My spirituality was definitely challenged, though. I had I did have a lot of anger towards God and it's like and life. Why? You know, why me? Why did this happen? Uh, but I do think my spirituality grew in the sense of really diving in and uh, trying to understand 
what does happen after we die? What what feels right for me in, in my perspective? What do I want to teach my son? Where do I feel that Sean is? And also that my relationship shifts from him being physically here to how can we have a relationship with him and his spirit and his soul while he's not physically here present in front of me. So a lot of that growth had to happen after, but I was grateful that I had this kind of a baseline of like I do believe that something that our people go somewhere it's more of like where and what does that look like and what is that experience and what does that mean for me now still being here trying to figure out and navigate this thank you so much for explaining how it was for you because I do I do think that in some cases for myself as well like that religious or at least spiritual belief about what happened did help my grief journey. But I do see that at some in some instances, some people are torn in between what they grew up believing about what happens and then what they currently believe. So like you said, you kind of go in that moment of like, wait a minute, wait, wait, do I really? No, I do think that there's something more now. You know, maybe you grew up believing there wasn't. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm like, no, I do believe there's something. I, I felt his presence or I can feel that connection still. So thank you for sharing your perspective and your own experience on it. Now, in that aspect of continuing that relationship, and we'll dive into the phases, but since you, you touched on it, can you share how you and your child still continue that relationship with Sean now? Because yeah. your, your son is young, he's three. How do you continue that relationship and that conversation with him? Absolutely. And I know the conversation is going to shift as my son gets older. Um, so for right now, and I have to say, I appreciate that families, it's more common now that families come in different shapes and sizes uh, than when I was his age and younger, just that nuclear looking family isn't, it, the nuclear family looks different, <laughs> is what I'll say. Um, so I, I appreciate that because now this is his normal um, but we do. We talk about his dad. He's very much like his dad. He, um, Anyone who knew Sean and then sees my son, immediately they go, oh, my gosh, there's Sean's eyes. Like, my son has his eyes. So there are those constant reminders. And I know for some people, they find those reminders painful. I don't. I love it. I, I love to see how he thinks. He thinks like his dad. So the way I've approached it is... Um, we, we have pictures up. That took a while for me to be able to put pictures back up. But um, I tell him that his dad lives in his heart and he's always with him. And I do tell him that his dad is in heaven. And I think for me, I, I'm constantly trying to navigate and figure out what the relationship looks like with Sean. But I do feel his presence. And there are times where I feel that I've gotten messages that are directly from him, whether that's been in dreams or I joke that like my thinking happens in the shower and then I just hope I hold on to whatever thoughts come because once I step out of the shower, they usually disappear. Um, yeah, we need, we need those uh, waterproof kind of notepads. I think they do have those right because everyone's ideas of like inventions or book ideas or song ideas come in the shower, right? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And they have like waterproof Alexa now. So I'm sure you can just like <laughs> tell Alexa what to, what to recall for you. 
Um, so he's definitely around, and I encourage people that I'm around my family uh, and friends to to keep Sean alive. And that you know his spirit and what how he blessed us in our life doesn't have to end because he's not physically here. And so that's kind of how we try. And and to be honest, I know I'm going to have some hard conversations as my son gets older. But my goal is to, while I don't obviously, I, I'm not happy at all that my husband died. But as you said earlier, to take that veil off and kind of normalize that this is a type of death and it was a choice and it's not, it's not my son's fault. It's not my fault, but to, but to kind of normalize in a way that his dad isn't here, but is still present. Does that make sense? (laughs) Absolutely. You know, I, I have the title of my podcast being Grief, Gratitude, and the Grain Between. And a lot of times people kind of twill with that aspect of the gratitude. I'm not saying you're grateful that X, Y, Z happened. That's not the, that's not what, what I mean by that. It's more that there, you actually say something in one of your, one of your phases is the, the collateral beauty, which I was like, oh, that struck with me like, oh, that is exactly what I mean by that aspect of gratitude is that you can find little things here or there to be grateful for that actually help you and, and kind of propel you to keep moving forward and living in spite of this big hole in your heart, you know, like, like a donut, the donut, there's like, there's a a hole in the middle, but there's still all this yumminess around it. Right. So, um, so anyway, so thank you for sharing all of that. Let's talk about how you started to think about these phases or how these phases came about for you. So let's go into shock and awe, which is the first phase, which I, I liked how you put it like that. And then there's these little sub things within that. So how was it for you experiencing this shock and awe? Of course, of this type of death is one of the ones that probably creates the most shock and awe, of course. So, but in general, in grief, there's the shock and awe stage or phase. Yeah. Um, and I'll say the way that these phases came out for me was that I had like almost a tangible shift that happened where I physically felt something going on within my body, within my brain. And I was like, oh, something's changing here. The shock and awe, yes, there was a lot of shock. Um, And and there's no way of predicting how long that's going to last. There's no way of of knowing. And, And your body does that and your brain does that to protect you. And so anything that's going to be traumatic, that's going to be the response. And to work through that shock and even looking back now, I'm like, oh, I, you make decisions. And, and I do say this, that people say, don't make any big decisions in that first year or take some time. I'm like, you don't always have that time. And so you have to make decisions with the best knowledge that you have in the moment. Maybe it would be different if you weren't in the shock, um, but it definitely is there. And for me, it lasted four months and I've known people where it's lasted shorter than that, longer than that. But I felt a huge weight. It was kind of weird. A weight lifted off my shoulder, but then also almost like a dread that set in because it was that this shock lifted. So I had a little bit more clarity, but the dread that set in was, oh, this really happened and he's not walking in the door. And I remember I was in my living room and I literally stared at my front door and realized you're not coming back. 
And that's where a lot of the emotions started to flood in a little bit more intensely for me. And I started realizing that I had actually been in shock, which I mean, you know that you're in shock. You just, you know, three months later, you don't necessarily still realize that you are. Um, But that's really where you're just like true survival. You're just getting day by day. I think there's a lot of numbing that goes on. Um, You know, you're you're really just trying to keep yourself alive and everything together as well as as you can during that first phase. And and your son was so young too. He was under two, correct? He At yes, he was just over one. He had just turned one. Right just turned one. Me. So just in general, motherhood, parenthood with a little one is already a survival mode. So on top of that, you are adding this part of just surviving this news and this new information, and all of a sudden, this new life that you're having to continue on without Sean next to you. It's just a lot. It's you, you still have had to get out of bed, right. To help your, your son out and and so forth too. So how did you manage the day by day in those four months, as you mentioned in that kind of survival mode? Yeah. Initially, I mean, I do say it takes a village, And the village changes, but I did have a lot of support and help. And I will say, I think it's important when going through something like this to find one small thing that you can latch on to so that it does get you out of bed no matter what time, even to go to the bathroom or take a shower or brush your teeth. That gives you that pull to actually say, I can get out of bed today and that's all I can do and that's fine. My son was that for me because I, I knew immediately, I, I knew that this, his dad's death um, would impact him, but I didn't want it to dictate his life, nor mine. And so understanding that it would impact things for him, I knew that it wouldn't be fair to allow my grieving journey to hold my son back in being able to embrace and and really learn and grow in his life and to become who he is meant to be. And so I did need to pull in a lot of resources through that. And there were some days where it was very difficult for me to get out of bed. And then that's when I would reach out and say, I, I need help with my son. Or can someone, I had people making meals for me for a very long time. And that was very helpful because it just took away the pressure of even having to think. Afternoons and evenings were very hard for me and still sometimes are. Um, So initially I would say is just holding on to that one thing. And then I just knew if I hit my capacity, I would just have to stop whatever I was doing. And there was business that had to be taken care of almost immediately. And I'd just be like, I can't do any more today. Or I would say, can someone help me with this? Which was also hard for me to do because I, you know, I just learned to you got to just do it all, <laughs> but I, I can't do it all. <laughs> right. Did you, and you mentioned you're the oldest of the three. Of I'm the youngest. Siblings. I'm you're the youngest. The youngest? Mm-hmm. Okay. I just, I just thought sometimes younger ones kind of learn to kind of do on their own, but sometimes the older ones also end up learning to be very independent. So I wonder if your birth order even dictated how you know, na- I'm sure there's some elements of that of how you navigate asking for help or not because depending on that is that right oh absolutely yes and I can say it was very hard for my siblings because they 
everyone feels helpless at that point and they don't know what to do. And they're looking to, they were looking to me to guide them and I didn't even know. And so that's why I like to encourage people to just reach out, say, I'm bringing a meal. I'm going to take your son, which it was hard for me to allow people to watch my son for me. Um, I had a lot of separation anxiety that came up, so I had to navigate that as well. Um, but that's why I encourage people to just almost say like, this is what I'm going to do for you today versus waiting for the person to tell you. Cause it's very like, yeah, it's hard. Yeah. It's so that part of offering as someone that is accompanying somebody that is grieving, then being very clear as to how it is you can help them, maybe give them two options. Like I've heard things of like, do you want me to bring lasagna or this, you know, or lasagna Mm -hmm. or spaghetti. And would you like me to deliver it Tuesday or Friday? Like (laughs) very clear, concise, different things. Would you like me to mow your lawn or (laughs) so? And it's something I've learned even from doing this podcast, even though I've experienced grief myself, is that aspect of clarity. Because I still, still to this day, I sometimes do. Let me know if there's anything I can do. I still do that blanket Mm -hmm kind of offer. Now I, I try to be, if you need any resources, any tools, any links, any books, I'm happy to guide you. Any podcast episodes that, you know, those are things I know that I have access to right away too. So. Oh yeah. I'd say I went through this experience and I'm still going through it and I am still one of the most awkward people when it comes to death. (laughs) And so I, I usually am like, Oh that's a bummer. No one wants to hear that's a bummer, right? I'm like, imagine if so- I'm sure somebody telling you that after Sean died, oh, right? Like, that's a bummer. No, that's like rock shattering. But even still, that's the part that I've also learned. It's not necessarily what people say. It is also just knowing that they're really trying to help and be there for you, right? So oh, being yeah. able to to know that the intent behind those words is really what you're trying to focus on. So you had your family to support. You had a community, which is huge. Now, in that first shock and awe, is, is that a stage in which you, at that point, started to look for then community of people that could understand a little more of what you yourself had gone through as well? Or was that in the next phase? I Well, this is what I like to say. I'm an Aries. So I like to just take stuff on head on. So what I didn't understand was that this grieving and, and mourning process is almost like a lifetime. And, and I did initially call it like a lifetime sentence. I won't necessarily call it that anymore. Because I was like, okay, what do I need to do to get through this? Like, I don't want to be hurting the rest of my life. I don't want to be dealing with this. And the truth is, like, Sean's missing. So there's going to be times where I'm going to miss him on Christmas. I'm going to miss him for my son's birthdays or when he's, you know, hitting milestones. I, um, my sister was great. She found a suicide support group right away for me. Um, I immediately, I had already been working with a therapist, so I contacted him immediately uh, I di- you know, I tried to reach out and say, I know I can't do this on my own. Who can help me be able to get through this? And some, you know, my therapist initially was like, okay, you got it. You got to take some time to feel the feels like we're not going to bypass this, which was you know a little frustrating, but I do understand now why 
because I did need to feel the feels. So I definitely started looking to that community immediately after. And I'm still finding that that community changes and and shifts. But um, initially, I was put in touch with someone right away who had lost her husband to suicide. And she was fantastic. I mean, this is like day day one. And she was right by my side. I could text her at any time. She was there to help me. Um, there are a couple other women that I'm still friends with who also went through at different times. Like we're all at different kind of levels of where we are in our process. But um, And I'm grateful because I can tap into these resources depending on what I have going on. Yeah, community, I, I really think is so important. It's so important because not only for the support, but in this case for you to, to find someone else that can relate in some shape or form to what you're going through. And in that relating, let me let me ask you, was the element of judgment for yourself or judgment of others or feeling judged in your own process, did that come up it, or has it come up in your journey of grief? Oh, Absolutely. <laughs> like day day zero <laughs> there mm-hmm. was there was judgment there was questions over my marriage there was questions over my motherhood uh did I know this was coming why didn't I stop him that went on to what kind of griever I am we I think as as humans right we look to others to kind of gauge how we should be grieving. And I don't really like the shoulds, but we use those. And it's often a reflection of what we need. I found out I'm a private griever. So I usually hold it together and then find some time in the evening to kind of let myself grieve. Other people are more outwardly grievers. And so there was judgment over if I was crying enough. Was I um, too business-like is the one that came up quite a bit or too stoic And that was even still during some of the shock phase. So um, there is a lot of judgment. And I think it's because, one, suicide scares people. Of course it does because there's no predictability to it. Um, I like to say that it doesn't discriminate. There's no no way to really know, right? We, We like to think that there are some signs. Maybe you look back and go, maybe that was a sign. But two people could have the same upbringing, the same experience, and one dies by suicide and the other one doesn't. And that's terrifying because it's such a traumatic and horrific experience. And so we like to create that space. And then also in creating that space, we're reflecting what do we need in order to feel safer. And that's where I think the judgment comes out is, wait a second, you're not crying enough. Did you know something happened to him? Did you know? You no, know, it's it's just that I'm going to save my tears for for later kind of thing. Um, but again, I think it's a, in a, where people are looking to feel safe that somehow something like this won't happen to them. Mm-hmm. You, like you said, you can do everything on a checklist and still things like this, uh, like what you experienced happen. So let's move on to phase two, the now what. So that now what stay, phase, I, if I say stage, you know why it is <laughs> because you even mentioned it at the beginning of the the stages, which I agree with you. It's really hard to just label s- stages of grief. Yours are more blanket of, um, of, a, of explanation. So the now what phase that you experience, share with us, please. Sure. This is the part where 
you're out of the shock. So now you're getting more of those intense emotions over your experience and the, the grief is coming out a little bit stronger. But then for me, it for that phase, people were kind of getting back to their day-to-day life. It was something that happened to me. Yes, they, they didn't see Sean on a daily basis necessarily. So it's not like his death was out in front of him. So it's kind of having to, again, bridge that you're getting back to work more frequently, let's say. You have business, you have adulting you have to do, you have a house you have to take care of, a child that you have to take care of, but you also have this massive grief that's occurring and this emotional journey that you're on. And how do you balance those two? How do you be able to compartmentalize enough that you can take care of what you need to while also still working through a very traumatic experience and work through those emotions. It's it's kind it's basically what I call like how you're starting to pick up the pieces. And what what does that even mean? You know, what what trajectory does your life have and and it's kind of like a you have to start taking baby steps to move forward, but for me there was still so much analysis of what happened in trying to figure out and could I have stopped him? What part did I play? And really entering that healing journey of, of starting to pick things apart so I could start that healing process. And with, within that healing, one of the chapters of that now what that I really liked, which is the last one, is the boundaries. Explain how boundaries played such a huge part or still play a huge part in your healing journey, in your sure. grief journey. Yeah, I was horrible at setting boundaries. Horrible. And so after... I think we all are, right? <laughs> we all are. And then we get mad at everybody else. Be- and I was saying to somebody, it's like, well, if we've never we've never shown someone where a line is, like, how do they know they've crossed it if we've never created it? Yeah, so right. share. Yeah, yeah, sorry to interrupt. No, no, that's fine. You're you're right. I mean, and I, I say I'm a recovering people pleaser. Um, because a lot of it was, I bought in to a lot of the questions and things that were said about me, my marriage and my motherhood, because I didn't know. And the people who were seeing things initially were trusted people. And that's one of the things with grief. And I don't know if you went through this with your grieving process of some of the people you think are definitely going to have your back don't. And then some of the people that you're like, you're a saint. Where did you come from? Are, are, I just met you at the, you know, grabbing groceries this morning and here you are by my side. <laughs> completely, yeah. completely. So there's no, again, no predictability, no rhyme or reason. And so, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought for a second. Boundaries, <laughs> yes. the boundaries. So yes, for you, the people pleasing component, yes. I'll, I'll reel you in. <laughs> You're, you you have one of your sections there called like a train without uh, brakes or whatever. So sometimes yeah. our brain does go that way too. So oh, always and still, right? Still working on the memory <laughs> yeah. piece. Yes. And so what I had to start doing is by working through my own core limiting beliefs, I had to start piecing apart and really almost in another way, like I intellectualize everything. So I started analyzing what people were saying and then really trying in almost a way kind of doing my own cognitive behavioral therapy. Like, where's the proof of this? What are they, what are they using to say this? And then finding out, figuring out, okay, like a lot of people wanted access to my son, but then thought that it was reasonable to question my motherhood. And I had to say, this doesn't feel right. And also what, what, what example am I setting for him if I'm saying it's okay for people to say these horrible things about me, 
but they can still have access to you. Like, where's my worth in all of this? So I had to really start peeling apart what was going on and then find myself in the middle of it because I was going in every direction. I was buying into something must be wrong with how I'm grieving. I must have caused this because we had arguments in our marriage, which everybody has arguments in their marriage. No one is a perfect parent. Um, So I had to start saying like, where am I in all of this? And I still have times where I'm like, is it true what they were saying about me? And I have to remind myself, no, that's often a reflection of people's own grief and and their, again, their fear and their anger that they couldn't stop this and didn't see this coming. And that took me a very long time to get through. But it really started initially with me just having to set one boundary at a time of, okay, if you are making a comment that it should have been me and not Sean, I think it's best that for my healing process, I need to create some space. And so one by one, and again, that people pleaser came out. What are people going to think of me? I must have done something. And now um, I'm much better about setting boundaries or saying, again, I try and like filter it through. How does this make me feel? And what kind of example or how do I want to teach my son how to, to be treated and also to set boundaries? And that really helped kind of guide me. Wow. Yeah, that is so much. I When you just said the part that people would say that it should have been you and not him, like, I cannot even believe that that type of thing would come out of somebody's mouth. Uh, that brought to mind the aspect of secondary losses that occur when someone dies. In that, friendships being you know, not affected, for example, that in itself can be a secondary loss. What are some of the secondary losses that you can recall or that you experienced that were really hard for you to navigate as well as, of course, missing Sean? Oh, I love that you're bringing this to light because, in fact, one of the things I, I trialed here in Colorado, a grief and movement group, and part of it was to exactly address those secondary losses. Because at the time that Sean died, we were trying to expand our family. So there was this whole life that we had been creating. We were talking about two days before he died. We were talking about a trip we wanted to take um, when COVID restrictions were a little less. You know, we had just met some new people who scuba scuba dive. And so we're like, oh, we're going to go meet them and go scuba diving. So you have this whole trajectory of your life and where it was going. That's part of it. You have the loss of who you were with that person. I am not the same person, not only the person who I was with Sean, but also it's been hard for some people who knew me before his death and know me after because there are certain things about me now that are not the same. I tell people I'm still waiting for my witty sense of humor to come back because there are certain things that used to make me laugh all the time and, and don't anymore. And it's hard to watch people make the same jokes. And I'm like, oh, I wish I'm like trying really hard to laugh for you. It's just, it's not coming. Well, because some of those things just probably also just become trivial for you. Like it's just mm-hmm. where you are in your space. Like that is just not worth my energy. Like, uh, yeah. So. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. And I think there's also mourning what your life is like now. I've had to mourn the fact that I was, I was not planning to be a widowed single mom. 
this was not part of our deal. And so there's a little bit of mourning with that. And it doesn't take away, again, I like to say this, it doesn't take away the love for my son. It doesn't take away how much I enjoy being his mom. But there are some pretty hard days. And I have to mourn the fact that this is my reality now. And I think there's a whole concept of that as well as the future now and mourning that that future is without your person. So I love that you bring that up because it's so true. We often just focus on the the loss of the person or whatever we're dealing with and forget that there are so many other components to it. And that sometimes those other components in a lot of cases for people that end up being the bigger parts of their grief sometimes that they don't even realize or that they do and then they feel guilty about it too. They feel guilty about like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm more worried or more about this than that, you know, gosh, it's like the comparison, the judgment of ourselves, the guilt, so many other emotions come up in, in grief, but there is this other beautiful part of grieving as well. And it's your last phase, which is the finding the collateral beauty. So Mm -hmm. let's go into that phase. And what was it for you when you started kind of seeing life through these other lenses. Yeah. And that one's hard. It's hard because your day to day, I mean, I wake up without Sean, I go to bed without Sean. And, and again, as time goes by, I don't, I don't really follow the time heals all wounds. I do think time is part of it, but you, you got to have other tools, <laughs> not just time. Um, the collateral beauty, it was when I started noticing that there were small things I was looking forward to. So if it was watching my son hang out with his cousins and him laughing, or even just hearing his giggle. I mean, I think kids have the best giggles anyway. Um, Or I would find that I was looking forward to something. Oh my gosh. And initially it was his swim lessons, like something so random. But I was like, I'm really looking forward to this. And I think that's when you start to see okay, there might be something that's still worth living for here. There's still potentially a life. And it took me a long time before I even thought, okay, I can actually plan for something. But it was just that mind shift of, I will get, I can plan for something. Not that I am, but I can plan for something. And that's when you start to see, and I think with a big loss, and, and you're right, there are some things that just seem so trivial now, and they're important to other people, and I recognize that. But for me, they do seem trivial because I've had such a major loss. But then I do find beauty in something as simple as a sunset or hearing the birds chirp after it's been snowing here for so long. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, spring, you know. So I think when you can start finding those small things, again, another thing to kind of latch on to to have as a tool. I like to say that it's good to to get in to good practices and habits when we feel good. We tend to wait until we're not feeling good or right, but do it when you feel good so that when you have that day where you're like, oh my gosh, I'm not sure I can get out of bed, you're already in a habit of going, no, I crave this thing and that's what's going to get me out of bed today. And I think that's where you can finally see like, oh, okay, I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I know I can still have joy in this life. That that is so important. It's like creating an attitude of gratitude, for example. One, that's something we all can start now. Because then, if you already have that aspect of gratitude, then in hard moments you already have that habit. Then you can switch it. It's kind of like exercise or movement. 
once you already have it and develop it, then it can be one of those tools that you use then during your grief. It may take sometimes a while to feel like going out for a walk, or maybe you used to go to a gym, but now you only go for walks in that, in your grief, but you already have that habit. So you've already established those tools and that, that, that's a big one. Yes. Thank you. It's like you go camping and you know what you take to go camping usually, but it, you know, here it is, this is a camping adventure you're in right now. Oh, yes. And you might've not known that you needed X, Y, Z. Now, you know, and you've put it in your toolbox and you're still finding out what other things you need for this camping trip you're on. And one of these things that you did during your camping trip, it's, this is such a, I don't know why my analogies come up that way, but, uh, <laughs> is to write this book. So share now, when did you then in this journey feel that you wanted to write as part of your own journey? And you mentioned you're a very private person and how you grieve, yet you still put something out on paper that was maybe part was just of your own personal process, but now you're helping others. So let's go into that, Alexandra. Yeah. Thank you. You say things so nice and concisely. I'm like, I just want to, I'm so really? glad. Really? <laughs> do, oh, do you know how often I go in and then be like, oh, I babbled. I bab When I'm editing, I want to just cut off all the times that I just babbled. So for you to say that I am concise is like music to my ears. <laughs> I got you on a good day. <laughs> um, yeah, I've always enjoyed journaling um, and writing. And when Sean died... I was gifted some beautiful books, but I found that nothing was really, I even searched online, nothing was really kind of showing me a, almost a guide of what to do when stuff is hitting the fan and you're getting it from all different directions and there's potential legal action coming your way and people are talking about custody of your kid and can you keep your house and you have all this going on all at once while you're just dealing with the fact that your husband just died and you you knew what was coming and it all happens all at once. And I just really felt called to write something to, to let people know when you're not alone, two, you can get through this. And here are some potential tools. Like that's the big thing for me is like I said, I started collecting tools right away and those tools change daily. What I use one day may not work the next day. But to give people an option to know, like, keep searching for those tools. And also, you know, if you are dealing with this, I personalized a lot of what was happening. I must have done something for all of this to happen. And that's just not the case. And to help other people realize that. So I kind of did this as a book that I wish existed um, when I was going through this process. And now hope that I can help other people through the process, um, like I said, to to know that they can get through it. And if you don't have some crazy happening, awesome. There's your attitude, gratitude, gratitude, attitude of gratitude to say, okay, at, you know, my community has come together. And if it has caused a riff or you're dealing with all sorts of additional drama, just know that you're not alone and it is possible to get to the other side of it. So, so perfect. It's like, if you don't, if you don't see what you want, just go create it. And that's what you did. You went ahead and just created it. You know, it's like you went and created, you created the tool you needed yourself. And as you were experiencing it, and now there's a gift then for 
for others. Thank you. So Alexandra, as we wrap up this conversation, is there anything I have not asked you that you want to make sure that you share with the guests? Um, well, I think you've done the a guests, phenomenal the job. The, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I always say, I'll see you later. And then people are listening. It doesn't always work. Um, I, you know, I think the just keep moving forward is a big part of it. And also a big part of this process is is learning and making that choice of forgiveness, which is so hard. And so I just want to encourage people, you know, to tap into the ability to love more than just your immediate community. How can you spread that love more and come to a place of forgiveness? Because I feel that the way that we can help our children is to heal ourselves first and then teach our kids healthy coping skills by showing them that we can heal our own hurts. And a big first step to that is forgiveness. I'm still on that journey. I'll be honest. I'm still working on that, still trying to figure that out. Um, but I, that's like my big encouragement is to take a moment to reflect on on your own experiences and to take that first step to start healing. Mm, that is perfectly said. <laughs> and now how can people find the Suicide Club book? How can they get it? I'll make sure to put it in the show notes. But if you want to just oh. share with the listeners how they can find your book. Absolutely. You can look it up on Amazon. It is available on Amazon and also barnesandnoble.com. They're both online. Um, you can also, I have a website called forwardtojoy.com. So you can find a link there as well. Or if you have any questions, I can be reached at alexandra at forwardtojoy.com. Alexandra, who is this book for? Because it's even though it's called The Suicide Club, it, I, I honestly do not believe it's just for the person that experiencing that. So I, I could say myself, but as you're, <laughs> I could say who I think is for, but I would like you as the author to share, who do you think this book is for? Yeah. And I love that you were able to pick up on that. Um, it is for, in my opinion, it's for anyone who has had any loss and it, you know, anything that's been an impactful loss, whether it's from a person, or I think there are tidbits that even could, um, assist people who have had any sort of loss in life, whether it be like a big move or loss of a job or a big life change. I think that there are things that can help people. So anytime that you're feeling um, a profound loss, I think anyone could benefit from it. And I'm going to add to that. Mm -hmm. It's actually for anyone because if it's not just for someone experiencing it, but you will know someone that's going through that. And to read a book that can clarify to you or give you at least a little glimpse of what that person that you love may be going through gives you a better understanding and perspective to be a better support to them as well in their journey. So I would just add to anybody, yeah. anybody, grab it. That's grab it. Kendra, it. You say it for, I'll be like, <laughs> everyone's got to listen to Kentra. Anyone. I agree. I agree. There we go. So thank you again, Alexandra, for being on the podcast, for sharing your journey, for writing this book and creating a tool for so many others to feel connected and feel seen and heard in their own journey. So thank you again. Yes, thank you so much. It's been so nice speaking with you today. Thank you. Thank you again so much for choosing to listen today. 
I hope that you can take away a few nuggets from today's episode that can bring you comfort in your times of grief. If so, it would mean so much to me if you would rate and comment on this episode. And if you feel inspired in some way to share it with someone who may need to hear this, please do so. Also, if you or someone you know has a story of grief and gratitude that should be shared so that others can be inspired as well, please reach out to me. And thanks once again for tuning in to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. Have a beautiful day.